this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Next up, you'll hear from Diana House, who sold Tiny Devotions this year. Fascinating story, and man, does this take a lot of twists and turns, so buckle up. You're going to be in for quite a roller coaster ride. Diana went and built her company, very fast growth, 77% growth, ultimately, unfortunately, rode it over the top and waited too long to sell. And what you're going to hear is a cautionary tale about why it's best to sell when everything suggests you do exactly the opposite. The most important time, the best time to sell is when everything is going really well, not when you've plateaued. Here's Diana House to tell you the rest of the story. Diana House, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a big fan. Oh, that's great of you to say. Tiny Devotions, tell me about this company. What, what did you guys sell? Sure. So Tiny Devotions, I started nine years ago. Um, after finishing law school, I ran away to Bali and discovered this product um, called Mala Beads. So Mala Beads are meditation necklaces um, that have been worn kind of for thousands of different years and different traditions. And while I was in Bali on this yoga teacher training, I saw all these like LA hipster kids wearing these beads and kind of connected the dots that yoga at the time was very much a growing space as well as Lululemon, um, and that there was a blue ocean niche in the market of this product. Of these, so, these meditation beads. Yes. So awesome. we were the first company to launch this product um, in the West. So it was like luxury yoga jewelry would be the kind of simplest way of describing it. That's a category of one right there. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so luxury yoga jewelry. Uh, awesome. So how did you sell the jewelry? What was your sort of delivery model? Yeah. So um, I started kind of nine years ago. So that was kind of early e-commerce. So we first started with like, you know, a custom built e-commerce store. And a few years later, you know, discovered Shopify and we were on the Shopify platform for about you know, six or seven years until I sold the company. Got it. And so for folks who don't know Shopify, I mean, many people have heard of it, but maybe don't really know kind of what they do. What, what exactly does Shopify offer? Awesome. Yeah. Shopify is probably the most um, simple and widely used, um, you know, e-commerce um, software as a service for, you know, companies that are, you know, probably uh, not that more, not that much more than eight figures in revenue and below. So it's just like the easiest solution for backend for, for e-commerce. And I know that they are trying to dive into doing a lot of stuff over the eight figures mark as well with their Shopify plus, but 
it's kind of just like a, you know, full solution for e-commerce. Really, really easy to use. They have phenomenal support. They're Great. also Canadian, oh, which I go. appreciate. Um, and uh, it's just a really, really simple software to use. Okay, so you've got a shop. I'd be interested. Did, did you consider an Amazon store? We did an episode a couple of weeks ago with a lady who who built and sold businesses on Amazon. It, is, is that something you guys thought about? Yeah. So um, the e-commerce platform was like you know the eighty twenty of our business. We also did have an Amazon wing and we also did have a wholesale wing. Um, that, that said, we never had any expertise on our team around Amazon. So, you know, we did do revenue on that, but we never built it out, you know, as a full channel. Got it. Okay. So you've got the Shopify store. Now the beads themselves, are you manufacturing them or are you buying them and reselling them? Yeah, look, like when we started out nine years ago, I was literally like beating things myself. But nice. after our first our first month of business, we um, we paid off like the entire website and more. And I realized I was like, OK, this is not something I'm about to do. So very quickly on, you know, I delegated the making of the product after the first month. Um, and so we had um, a combination of local artisans who were making the products as well as factories um, in China um, and Thailand and India that were also making them for us. How did you get people to this site? Like, are you buying keywords or search or content? Like, how are you getting eyeballs to the site to start buying? So yeah, I started this business um, with $3,000. And that was actually a grant from, uh, I know you're also Canadian, um, from the Ontario government, the Small Business Enterprise Center had this program called Summer Company Program. Hmm. You know, I was 25. And they give uh, people who are going back to school, if there's any young listeners in Canada, I highly recommend you check this out. They will give you $3,000 to start a business and some mentoring over the summer if you're going back to school. It's like, a, so, it's like a, an advertisement for the Ontario government right here. Literally. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like exactly. The, the poster child for the Ontario government program. Hey, great. I'm not the only one that started a seven-figure company from this little grant. So because of that, I didn't have a lot of money you know, for advertising or, you know, marketing. Um, and at the time, Facebook organic was on fire. So um, this is, you know, a, a very different landscape nine years ago. When I started out, I was literally like hustling and selling just through Facebook organic. Um, and, you know, as, as the company went along, we had to shift that strategy because, you know, Facebook kind of changed. Um, I mean, a little bit off topic. I feel like I really missed the Facebook paid opportunity that happened like eight years ago where you could get like, you know, one cent leads and five cent leads just because Facebook organic was working so, so well. Um, but, you know, as we shifted, we explored, you know, multiple different marketing strategies from email marketing to, you know, Facebook organic um, Facebook paid. We did a ton of influencer marketing. Um, and again, we were doing influencer marketing before influencer marketing was even a thing. So this um, is just, getting some celebrity or someone important to wear your jewelry you know, on camera, so to speak? Yep. We had micro-influencers. So in our space, it was specifically, you know, well-known yoga teachers. Sure. Um, we would, you know, send them, you know, a piece. And for these kind of well-known yoga teachers, we ended up being like the first brands that a lot of them had collaborated with. Um, that's kind of how early we were in this like influencer marketing approach. And that just came down to being really, really scrappy and having, you know, no money for marketing um, and needing to get this product out there. So beyond the three grand that you got from the program, the government grant mm-hmm. program, did how else did you fund 
the growth of the business? Did you, did you bring on investors or partners or was nope. it just cash flow? All, all cash flow and hustle. Got it. Um, so that's kind of my passion, entrepreneur, entrepreneur finance. And I really believe that companies should make money today. Um, not tomorrow, and that there's you know always a way, and it just entails being really really scrappy and finding the opportunity exploit in the moment and in the climate, and you know there's always a way to do that in my belief. Um, in most businesses, I know some you know require you know more investment for inventory or you know you're building sophisticated software, but I think there's you know a big belief out there that you need to have you know all this money to get started, but the reality is if you do that, you'll probably screw up with all that money. Because you have no idea what you're doing at the beginning, anyways. Well said. It's funny. I just got. I just thought there was an interview yesterday. It'll probably air in a couple of weeks um, with a guy who felt the exact opposite. He was a technology guy, and he was like, you know, you got to share your equity. You got to bring on investors. You got to, you know, seed round, first round, A round, B round. Like he's very much focused on raising money as the the raison d'etre. So it's so funny and and somewhat refreshing to hear you say exactly the opposite, <laughs> uh, which is great. Which is great. Which is great. So how did and it go ahead? Well, no, it depends on the circumstances as well. I guess you shouldn't generalize in either situation. Of course, there's some offers, like you know, some situations where it makes a lot more sense to raise money if you're doing something massively capital intensive, mm-hmm. um, or if you need, you know, a strategic partner that has this skill set that you don't have. So, you know, there definitely are situations, but in general, I feel like especially a lot of young entrepreneurs, they think they need to raise money um, instead of being scrappy and like they don't have a clear path to revenue and profitability and they can spend years of time, you know, building this thing that never ends up making money. Yeah. It makes sense. So how big did you get tiny? uh, It's tiny devotions, right? You got it. How big did you get tiny devotions before you thought it's time to sell? Yeah. So we didn't get that big, but we did cross um, the seven figures you know, Mark and we were featured on um, Canada's like W100 of one of the uh, top companies um, owned and operated by a woman um, in the country. Fantastic. So you passed seven figures in terms of revenue. Was there a trigger that made you think, hey, maybe now is the time to sell? Like what? Yeah, so I'm a quick start um, for people who know the Colby. Um, and I think after a year, I wanted to sell. Like I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. Figure this out. Like, you know, don't really care about yoga that much anymore. Not really into jewelry or beads. I'm actually a minimalist. So not drawn to stuff. So after a year, I actually almost sold, um, but couldn't agree with the buyer on a number. And because that deal fell apart, I was like, okay, you know, I'll just keep building this. Um, And then so when I started the sale process, you know, the, the next time it was two years ago. And this was like a really crucial aspect of my mistake in selling this company. Um, so as a serial entrepreneur, I am involved in a lot of different things. And I've had you know, other companies and a lot of other investments. And I went through like a really, really crazy busy season where we were you know, doing a development project in the real estate, real estate space, selling our other e-commerce company. It was a company called Colin Parker. It was Bright Colorful Socks. Um, and it was a social enterprise, um, getting married, you know, running some other real estate stuff. And we were so, so busy that I was not in the mindset to actually look at my portfolio of businesses um, and investments and really look at, hey, what's, what's the thing I should do right now with each of these things? So I was in a bit of this like chaotic state for a few years doing 
all this stuff with all these investments and all these companies. And it wasn't until August 2016 that I had the space to actually strategically look at my holdings and have time to sell this company. So by the time that came around um, and I looked at this business, I had this thinking feeling that it was going to be not the right time and that it was too late. And I remember talking to my accountant and saying, I'm very close with him and saying, you know, Dave, when should I sell this company? And he's like, well, you should have sold it a year ago. Why? What, what <laughs> happened in, in, in the interim? Did, were your, did your revenues drop? Profitability drop? What so happened? I think the year before that, we'd had like 77% growth. And, you know, we had had so much momentum and that kind of season of growth had kind of, you know, tailored off and we weren't dropping yet, but we had kind of stopped growing. And the climate in this niche had drastically changed. So when we started out, we were a blue ocean, you know, product in a blue ocean space. So blue ocean that, for people who don't know is a, yeah. a category of one essentially. So you know, a space where you've got some differentiated value proposition. We we call it monopoly control at Value Builder, but cool. I, I kind of I know what you're saying. For sure, yeah. So we were like the only company in this space creating this product, and in addition to that, we had beautiful margins. Um, so, you know, um, our cost of goods, like our gross, our gross profit was like 80%. So we had, you know, tons of space, you know, to make money within this business. And so what happens is if, if you have a blue ocean product that has really high margins and, um, not, um, I forget what the exact term is, it'll come to me in a second, but really easy entry into the marketplace. Low barrier um, to entry. Yeah. Thank you. Low yeah. barrier to entry. Um, people are going to catch on and be like, oh, wow, this is a huge opportunity. And so that's exactly what happened. And because this was my first business, I wasn't super aggressive at identifying that I was in a blue ocean market and that I needed to go really fast and hard. Um, and I kind of alluded to earlier, I didn't take advantage of this huge Facebook ad opportunity when it was there. Because of this, I let so many different businesses into the marketplace. And without exaggeration, there are probably thousands of competitors now um, on, you know, Etsy, um, in e-commerce, um, all around the world. It, it is just crazy to see how many people are selling mala beads. And I always joke that London, Ontario, where I live, because, you know, people knew me here, we have the highest proportion of mala bead companies per capita. Um, because it's, it's incredible how many people locally were like, wow, this girl is like killing it with this mala bead company. I'm going to start this too. Um, so that created the, the perfect storm. And all of a sudden, we did not have the differentiators. Um, and I wasn't experienced enough to really know what to do in that situation. Wow. So, okay. So let me just see if I, if I'm getting the kind of story roughly sure. right. So 2015, you're growing like stink, like almost doubling the size of the business. So you surpass a million dollars in revenue. Um, it's profitable, but all of a sudden in 2016, you kind of flatline, no growth. And all you can see around you is competitors popping up all over the place. For sure. And I can see the writing on the wall. Like it's I remember it was around that time I went out for lunch with my sister and we're still doing really well, but I just knew. Like as an entrepreneur, I like was bawling at this lunch and I was like, oh no, I've totally screwed up. 
I've timed this the wrong way. Like, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to navigate this really well. And she was so confused. She's like, what do you mean? You have this like great company, you know, you're making a lot of money, but like I could, I could see the writing on the wall and I could feel the writing on the wall that like it was starting to get really, really tough to do what we were doing. And what we were previously doing was starting to not work. And we were having to work way, way harder for the same result. Um, and so that was kind of my, my moment as an entrepreneur of like, oh, snap, I totally messed up and it's going to be tough to get to the finish line here. Got it. So you've got roughly a million dollars in revenue, more than that. Um, yeah. What kind of net profit are you, you know, before tax are you, are you generating ballpark like percentage wise? Is it yeah, like we, 10%, we had, 20%? we had really, really healthy profit. And, and, you know, just to allude to that, our, our gross profit margins were 80%. Got it. Okay. So I'll, I'll read between the lines and suggest that your net profit was also relatively healthy. Yeah, it was, it was very high. Okay. Got it. So you've got this good net profit margin. Where do you go from here? I mean, you, you, it sounds like you're at a bit of a crossroads. Well, on one hand, you could double down and compete with all these, these new companies, or you could sell. It sounds like you chose the latter. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing, which I, I haven't mentioned is I, I mean, hate's a strong word. I very much disliked this company for like years. So I, I the had company we were referring for, to, Tiny Yeah, oh, even wow. though it was okay. doing really well, I was not into it. I was super bored of it. Um, you know, it was not a niche that I felt like passionate about anymore. Hmm. Um, it was working well. So that's kind of why I continued with it. But it didn't feel aligned with my values. Um, it didn't feel aligned with my passions. So like I knew I had zero desire to compete because like I didn't even care about this space at all. So I needed to get out, you know, as quickly as possible. In what way was it misaligned with your values out of interest? Oh man, that is such a big conversation. Um, but I guess on a you know very high level, you know, when I started it, I was really into yoga. And then, you know, over the years after that, I just like didn't even do yoga anymore. I didn't really, you know, identify with that community anymore. Um, and then also like the product, um, I like didn't wear or use the product. Um, you know, I just didn't really believe in what we were doing anymore. Wow. That's a, yeah. that's a harsh statement for an entrepreneur. Like what happened? Did, did, did you see like, like, was there a yogi that you, that you had falling out <laughs> with or what? how does anybody hate yoga? It's such a benign thing. No. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't about a hate. So I'm, I'm a Christian. Okay. Um, and my faith really evolved during the process. Ah, okay. And as my faith as a Christian evolved, you know, a lot of that kind of yoga world just like didn't really align anymore. Um, and so there's a much deeper story than that, but that'll take us way off topic. Interesting. Oh, fascinating. No, I think it's, that's, <laughs> that's great. Okay. Uh, good. So in any event, take us to the next step. So you realize you've sort of ridden this over the top, as it were, and that you've, you've lost passion. Where do you go from there? Do you, do you hire someone to sure. sell it? Do you put it on, you know, do you list the business? What, what's the next step? Sure. So I had already sold one business before. Um, and so being, you know, a pretty confident person, I was like, I got this. I've sold one before. I totally know how to do this again. And I also have a pretty crazy network. Um, so I... I've gone to like a lot of different masterminds and I'm part of an, a lot of amazing entrepreneur groups. So I was like, I'm pretty sure I, I have a buyer in my network um, and I'm pretty sure I can get this done pretty quick and easily. Um, 
And so what I did is my husband's amazing at creating like slide decks. Um, so he created a great slide deck about the business. And I identified five people in my network, two that had already kind of softly put it out that they were interested if I ever got to the place of selling this business. So I figured that between these five people, I would probably be able to get something done. But, you know, at the back of my head, I also know like, oh, this is not the best timing. But I'm like, I'm going to give this a go and I'm going to move as fast as I can and, and see what I can do. So um, I went to these uh, five people and I ended up getting two offers. Out of interest, before we go further, how did you go to them? Like, did you say I'm looking to sell? Did you kind of use more veiled language? Like I'm looking for a strategic partner or were you much more transparent about it? I was super straight up. So one of them um, I had, I would say, an intimate business relationship with already. Um, I was working with this individual in a business capacity. Um, and they had kind of softly put it out there one day of like, I would love to buy a business like this. So it was really easy for me to go to them and say, hey, if, if you're serious, I'm, I'm there. Um, so that one was really easy. And the other person was a strategic, um, strategic buyer. And again, we were close entrepreneur friends. And again, it was really easy for me to be like, hey, so Tiny Devotions is for sale now. I'm, I'm putting this out there to a handful of people. If you're interested, let's talk. Got it. And so you got, of the five, two people came forward saying they were interested. Yes. In what way, by the way, was the second strategic? You, you mentioned they were a strategic buyer. Why, how did, how did For you sure. see them so, as strategic? Yeah, without kind of disclosing exactly who they are, mm -hmm. it'd be kind of easy to figure out um, who they are from. Too descriptive. Um, but they were in the e-commerce space already. Um, with a massive team, they had a hundred employees already, and they were, you know, experts in that space. Got it. Okay. So, of the five, two expressed interest. Where do we go from there? Yeah. Yeah. So I got two LOIs. Um, one was a multi-million-dollar deal by the strategic buyer, um, and the other one was um, a seven-figure deal um, with the non-strategic buyer. Um, but both people were friends. Both people are like really great people. Um, and this was kind of the, the first big crossroads. I, I really, you know, really struggled with like, okay, which of these parties do I, I go with? You know, I knew the multi seven figure, figure deal was like a bit high, but I was like, you know what, they are strategic. And, you know, I really was like, okay, I know this is a big decision to make because I could screw this up. Um, and I also knew that like a deal is not a deal until you get to the finish line. So I was like, I'm going to have to kind of roll the dice a bit and, and make a decision. But there was no reason why not to go with the multi seven figure deal. Um, so that is the deal that I decided to proceed with. Got it. Okay. So multi seven figure, meaning more than millions as, a, as opposed yeah, to million. Correct. Got yeah. it. Okay. And, and what multiple are, are we talking of your earnings then? I, I'm just trying to get a sense of, is, is yeah. this like a spectacular it was a, it was It was a spectacular um, multiple, you know, they say on average, e-commerce is a three times multiple, three times earnings. Um, yeah. Three times normalized EBITDA. And, mm -hmm. and this was much higher than that. Okay. So much higher than three. Got it. So, yeah. uh, had, had you in your mind put a price on the business? Like had you said, like, if I get X, I'm going to, I'm going to sell for sure. Yeah. So I had actually gone to them saying this was my number. Oh, so I, you, I was, had, you had gone to them. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I was like, this is my number. And I don't know. I think I was like, probably really cocky at this point. What was your and number? Thinking, 
Well, it was the, it was multiple seven figures. Got it. Okay. Yeah, and so they agreed, and we were off to the races into due diligence. And this is where I feel like I made my biggest fatal mistake. Mm. <laughs> After, well, I think well, yeah, my first biggest mistake was not selling early. And I mean, there's some great books, and I know you've referenced them on your podcast before. Um, early exits is one of them. Yeah, Basil Peters. Um, yeah. Yep. And I, I think I read like, I, I read your book. It was great. Built to sell. Um, I read Early Exit. Um, I think you have Finish Big that you've referred yeah, to Bo before. Yeah, Bob Burlingham, great like, book. Yep. Yeah, I read all of these books and I definitely recommend if someone is even like thinking that they want to sell in the near future, um, educating yourself as much as possible, you know, listening to your podcast is phenomenal. Like you, you get so many tips and tricks um, from immersing yourself kind of in this space. So um, yeah, definitely my first mistake was not selling early enough. Um, my second mistake was was my legal mess up. And so I went to law school, so I should know better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I totally messed up here and I'll share kind of exactly what happened. So um, once we got an LOI, um, you know, from this party, it came down to, you know, our lawyer reviewing it and uh, and moving into due diligence. And so I'm not the best at details, which is why I would be a horrible lawyer and why I did not pursue, um, you know, that profession. Um, and so my lawyer was reviewing this and this is a great lawyer and I, I still work with him to this day. Um, but he had ended up asking for the deposit at a firm agreement as opposed to at signing of LOI. And I missed this on a few back and forths as we were going back and negotiating the LOI. And by the time I caught this, we were so close to an agreement on LOI that I didn't want to use the negotiation chip of making one more change on the LOI because we had such a friendly kind of, you know, banter going back and forth. So when I caught it, I kind of cringed and was like, oh, I don't love that we have asked for this at firm agreement because that meant that the buyer would have not a dollar of skin in the game and that for three months, I would be going through due diligence. That was the due diligence period that they had asked for. Three months, I'd be going through due diligence um, and they would have no skin in the game um, and nothing kind of on the line. And so I, I, I caught it. I could have like gone there, but I decided that because of how friendly we were, um, and because I didn't want to use that negotiation chip in that moment that I was going to let it fly. So for, for folks who maybe are, um, are new to some of these terms, LOI stands for letter of intent. So it's not a legally binding document. Typically it's just a, it's a, it's a formal letter that says, look, we're going to go forward. Usually it includes a no shop clause, meaning you as the entrepreneur would have to stop negotiating with anyone during the time of due diligence where the buyer has usually 60, 90 days to kind of, uh, vet what you said during the sales process. In your case, did, did Diana, did you have a no shop clause? I believe we did. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So you got the LOI and, and, uh, you know, it, my experience would be that there is actually no, usually no, you know, there's no breakup fee or no deposit paid at the LOI stage. But in your case, it sounds like you were looking for a, a deposit of some sort. Yeah. I mean, so from again, and every circumstance is different, but a lot of, a lot of people I know who've sold, they have received a, you know, it's a refundable deposit or specifically a non-refundable deposit, unless there's a material misrepresentation. Um, and this deposit is there so that you can prove that like the person does have money 
um, and that there is kind of, you know, some security for you to go through this process. And so as you look back, you wished you had pushed harder for that deposit. Presumably something happened in diligence then? Yeah. So what happened was um, we, as we kept going through due diligence, you know, we were doing like weekly calls. I was providing them everything they needed. Um, But, and they kept being like, we're going to be closing, um, you know, mid-December. So, you know, we're working towards this date, but I felt like there was no, like there was no urgency. And I just had this like gut feeling that this was not going to happen. And then simultaneously, operationally, we are having challenges. We had hired a new operations manager um, and it was not working out. Our revenue starts declining. Um, Not a lot, but like, it is like subtly declining. Like we're not hitting our numbers. And I'm just like, Oh no, this is like literally a perfect storm happening. Um, and so we got really close to the date that they decided, um, that was going to be the closing date. And then they told me that they decided that they were going to sell their company instead and not make an acquisition. Wow. Yeah. And so it was very casual for them because they didn't, again, it felt like they had no skin in the game. And so had I got a deposit, I feel like they would have been more serious at deciding, are you really going to buy this company? Or like, what do you actually want to do and not waste my time? Because that kind of two and a half month process, it was so stressful. Um, It was like one of the most stressful periods of my time. And, you know, again, there was, there was no skin in the game and no urgency for them to make a decision. I kind of felt like I was strung along and they were like, yeah, I think we're going to sell instead of buying this. And at that point I lost momentum with the other buyer. And I just personally lost a lot of momentum around this transaction. What was it that was your first clue that they didn't have the sense of urgency that you had to close the deal? You know, I don't know if there was anything super tangible. It was just like this gut feeling I had the whole time that I was just like, I don't know. Like, I I don't think they have skin in the game. You know, I was very much like pushing and directing the due diligence process. And I felt like I was the one that was kind of always following up about like, hey, what do you guys need next? What's the next step? Like, how are we going to make sure that we do this, you know, within the time frame? Oh, man. Yeah. I would have been fit to be tied. It, yeah, it was not good. And, you know, unfortunately, I ended up having some health issues after that. Like, I stopped sleeping for a bit. Like, it was just such an accumulation of stress that when by the time this deal fell apart, to be honest, I was kind of relieved. I was like, I just need a break from this process because it was such an intense experience having someone watch every single thing that you're doing in the business and not having the most epic results while while they're doing that. Um, It was just, it was like a pressure chamber. Um, So I was actually relieved when the deal fell apart. So I was like, I just need a breather. Out of curiosity, what would your revenue have dropped? So a year over year basis. So let's say it's September, uh, on a year over year basis, a year ago, September, would you have dropped, what percentage of your revenue would you have dropped? In that period? It it was nominal. Like it may have even been like 2% or something like that, but it just, you know, we were working really, really hard. 
And like for that, like, you know, like we were really, really trying and like the numbers were just like not coming through. Man. Okay. So it was more of the flat line than the drop, but it, it, I do believe from my memory that it was a slight drop as well. Got it. So where did you go from there? So from there, I needed a break. I was like, that was a horrible experience. Um, and again, like I literally had health issues for a few months that I had to like get healthy again, get sleeping again, and just really kind of process, you know, my mistakes in that and kind of make some operational changes. And to be honest, at that point, even though the company was still making a lot of money, I actually contemplated like walking away at that point because hmm. it was such a horrible experience um, that I was just like, and I was so done. Like by the time I came to selling this company, I was so past the point of done that I was, I had not put myself in a really good negotiating place because I was just so internally over what I was doing. And that's why like consider um, selling early is just something I think every entrepreneur should consider because you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, your market could change. You can go from a blue ocean to a red ocean. You know, you may have some family things that come up. You know, you just never know what you're walking into. And and sometimes really considering selling a little bit before you're ready is is the good decision to make. I think that's such good advice. I mean, the you know, it's so counterintuitive, right? When everything's yeah. going well, you're like, no way, and I gotta wait until you know we 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 cap out and 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 of course it's so difficult to know when that's gonna happen. So yeah. so so you're you're obviously burned out. Where did you go next? Did you end up shutting the company down? Did you ultimately sell? Yeah, so I did sell. Um and I don't know how much de I'll tell you high level what happened and then you can kind of choose where you want yeah, to dive sure. into earlier. So from there I realized that, you know, trying to sell this on my own maybe wasn't the best approach. Um, and that as much as I had like read all the books and listened to all the podcasts, maybe I needed some, you know, external support. And um, so what I did is, you know, compiling information from these books and podcasts and things like that. Um, I, I compiled a list of highly recommended brokers and, um, I started working with a broker. Um, and so high level started working with one very highly reputed broker was not successful. So that was like a three month engagement, um, took another, you know, month off, then enlisted another very highly, you know, recommended broker, also not successful. Um, then took another break, turned to my husband. My husband is like epic at sales. I'm like, you know, babe, maybe like, maybe it's me. Like maybe I'm the one that's standing in the way of this sale, which I think is a possibility, you know, entrepreneurs, sometimes we can get in the way. Um, and I asked him to sell the business. He enlisted a third broker and he had like the worst success <laughs> of all the three situations. So then I was like, okay, it's definitely not me. Um, and so in those three brokers, we came super close to selling multiple times. And so as you can imagine, the sale amount is going down every failed like attempt. Um, why and is that? Deals, why, why is it going down every single time? Our, our revenue, like, so I'm, I'm even more checked out of the business. Our revenue is dropping even more. Like, you know, it's just getting harder and harder. And the reason these deals would fall apart would be crazy. Um, the one time the deal fell apart in LOI because the buyer got in a fight with her spouse because she didn't read the agreement and she thought the deposit was said 10,000, but it actually said 20,000 or something like that. 
So like we kept getting so close and these like fluke situations would happen. The deal would fall apart and we'd be like, oh my goodness. Um, one of the deals fell apart because of due diligence. And that is sorry, not even in due diligence because we could not agree on what due diligence would entail. And so what the you know issue was about this one buyer group, they wanted me to disclose all of our customers' names and emails and information, um, as well as all of our supplier names and information during due diligence. Um, and to me, that just felt so unfair because they could just then take all those customer contacts and suppliers and do whatever they wanted with them after. Um, and so like that was another one of the reasons why one of these deals fell apart. Um, so I don't know if you want to dig into any yeah, of that. Or, any other okay. reasons they fell apart? Um, I mean, I do feel like there was issues around um, coming up with, you know, the typical structure stuff. You know, my accountant also told me this, you know, he's like, everyone wants to buy your company but not everyone has the money to buy your company. So there was definitely people who wanted to buy it for free, you know, um, being like, yeah, I want to buy it, but they didn't actually have the cash to buy it. And I felt like because of the subject matter of this company, like specifically the yoga jewelry space, um, there were a lot of people in that space who were maybe not the most serious business people that were very drawn to this product. Super flaky business owners, wannabes. Yeah. Exactly. I Not to throw the like, whole yoga community under the bus, because I'm no. sure there are some very savvy yoga people, Lululemon notwithstanding. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. So as you can imagine, that was an exhausting nine-month period. Um, and again, I got to that place in the summer where I was like, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. I've now wasted nine months of my life you know, or actually longer than that, because I now one year and nine months of my life, um, you know, selling this company, we have um, a very successful private lending company. That's kind of our main industry. Um, we have a lot of stuff that we do in the real estate space. We have many other businesses and the opportunity cost of running and trying to sell this company was getting higher and higher. Um, and that led me to August 1st of this year. So not too long ago. And, uh, for me, this was a very significant date because I had started um, the sale process in August 2016. And I had decided that this had gone on way too long. And August um, 31st was my deadline. So this was really, really powerful for me. And I have since had other conversations with other entrepreneurs that have had to do this in the process. And uh, for me, I was like, this is my date. And if I don't sell this company by August 31st, I am walking away. Um, and at this point, we had been you know, in business for nine years. We had been profitable for all nine of those years, um, but it had gone too far. And so that's when I kind of changed my approach and decided to be way more bold. Um, the first thing that I did is I actually told my operations manager that I was going to sell the business. And... Um, she had all the skills to run the business and I gave her the opportunity to potentially buy the company, um, which was a huge relief because I had like been, I've, I've had this secret for two years and that had been like really eating me alive, not telling my staff that the company had been for sale. So just telling her felt like a massive relief. Um, but based on different circumstances, she was not able, you know, to buy that company. Um, and, uh, 
I also kind of offered that opportunity to another employee that was also not in the place to, you know, buy the company. But that gave me a huge amount of relief. Um, the second thing I did was I realized that um, probably the person that would want to buy this company would be a customer and already in our community. And so what I did um, is I actually did an email to our entire list um, saying that I was looking to move on and that I was looking for someone to buy the company. Wow, that's that's the first I've ever heard that. <laughs> so you literally emailed your entire customer list yep. and said, I'm looking to leave. Who wants to yep. buy it? That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And so <laughs> not necessarily recommended. I just want to be clear, not necessarily recommended. <laughs> I just want to be clear on that. But I want to hear more. Go. Yeah. So seriously, after doing this, I was like, man, I should have done that earlier. <laughs> Because I think as entrepreneurs, we're so terrified for people to know, and rightly so. Um, you know, I'm a very low risk individual in the DISC profile. I'm extremely high cautious, high compliant. Um, and so it was very against every cell in my body to do this. And it definitely, I would not suggest this be like the first thing that someone does. Um, but I do think there's a certain point, like if you're at the point that you're considering shutting down the company, you should definitely just put it out there to everyone because, you know, like at that point, What's it just makes downside? sense. Right. Yeah. There, I, I had no downside. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I put it out there. I think I had 60 people reach out to me. Six is and wow. yeah. And so at that point, we're at now August 15th. Um, and so I knew that in order to get someone to the finish line, it was going to be very highly unlikely already. And out of those 60 people, I probably only dealt with about six to eight of them. So I kind of weeded them through. I had kind of a, a formula that I'd created because um, it, it's absolutely impossible to go through the process with 60 people. Yeah, what so, was the formula? Um, part of it was, you know, specifics around, you know, some of my, my personal values. Um, I didn't want people to take the business in, you know, one specific direction. And I, I feel like it, it's kind of personal, so I won't disclose what that was. Um, but if I felt like they were going to take that business in that personal, you know, direction, and it was something related to my faith, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to probably go down that path. Um, the other thing is I told them, you know, are you in a position that you are able to buy this company within the next two weeks? And that weeded out most people. Um, and that actually like pissed a lot of people off. They were like, well, that's so unfair. I want to buy this company, but I don't want to buy it so quickly. And I was like, okay, sorry, but that's, you know, not what I'm down to do at this point. I was so firm um, on the August 31st thing. And the biggest thing I had to get to um, around that was there was a huge ego thing for me around selling this company. You know, I never wanted to be the entrepreneur that ever shut down a company. Like that was very much tied to my value as a person and as an entrepreneur. Um, and so I had to get to the place where I was like, you know what? I'm not making this about ego. I'm making this about my personal, you know, happiness and my personal alignment. And I don't care if I have to shut this down. Um, and for me, it got to that place of the pain of staying past August 31st was more than any kind of personal ego hit or anything like that. Got it. It's like the old Tony Robbins thing where the pain has got to be equal or greater than whatever you're hiding from. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing, totally. but I'm kind of getting it right. Got it. And okay. I was there and I knew that by holding on to this company, even though, and I guess I should note, 
I wasn't even operational in the business. I had taken myself out of operations five years before. So, you know, according to any other entrepreneur, I was living the dream. I had, you know, no operational capacity at all. It was just taking up like too much emotional and mental space in my head that I knew it was holding me back from what I was going to do next. So you winnowed down the 60 down to six, then what? So yeah, went through the process with them and it also fell apart. And we came so close. We had a, um, a midnight deadline and uh, I was conversing with the last party and I was sure I'm like, it's got to be them. Like it has to be this, this person. Um, and they never responded to the last email. And uh, so that morning, so it was the morning after the deadline and I'm totally at peace. I actually do a personal Facebook post and I kind of tell my friends, I have a lot of entrepreneurs on Facebook. I'm like, so guys, this is really crazy, but I am shutting down my business after nine years, even though we have been profitable for nine years. <laughs> um, and I'm like, this is crazy. So I, I did this Facebook post. I drove to my office, walked into my team, and, and they had at this point known that I had this impending deadline. And they knew that I was going to either sell or shut down by that deadline. Um, so they had already been primed. And uh, I walked in and I was like, hey, guys, so no one came through by the deadline and we are going to we're going to close the business. Um, and I had already drafted the close down um, email to our community that was already drafted. We were going to send it out three hours later. And uh, our whole thing was to have this meeting to come up with how can we close this business down with as much integrity, you know, and honoring the community as much as we could. So. In the closed down meeting, I have three more people reach out. <laughs> and I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this is like the roller coaster ride that is literally never ending. And one of the people had been the person that I had been speaking with the night before. And they forwarded me an email that showed that they had responded to me before the deadline, but they had accidentally not CC'd me. They had CC'd each other. So I was like, you literally can't make this stuff up. So started going down with the process with them and we realized we were not going to be able to come to an agreement. They did not believe me that August 31st would be the deadline and they decided that it would be September 31st. And I was like, nope, I'm 100% firm if you're not going to buy it by that deadline. Even though I know it's a very unrealistic deadline, um, I'm like, I, I'm not going to do that. So we go back to the closed down meeting and another person reaches out and I'm just like, this is crazy. Um, however, this time, this person is, um, he is a very successful entrepreneur. Um, you know, he has a company on like the Inc. 5000 list. He has owned several e-commerce companies. Um, he's a Christian. I have very shared values with him. He's done a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. And so at this point, like, you know, part of me is like, am I really going to talk to someone else? But I'm like, you know what? I trust this person. You know, I, I know he's, you know, legit. So I was like, let's at least have a chat. So we get on a call. And I literally tell him, like, you don't want to go down the process with me because here are my terms. You would need to give me a deposit by tonight. Um, you'd have to be done due diligence in 48 hours and we would have to close in nine days. <laughs> like, this is completely unreasonable. And I know it. And I'm like, honestly, like, you don't want to do this. Like, you really don't want to do this. And, and he was like, you know what? That's a really fast timeline, but let's keep talking. And for the next nine days, we were in constant communication. What was he the deposit me, you asked for? I think it was 5,000 bucks. Okay. So it wasn't a huge amount of money. Did he come through with that? Oh, he sent me that that night okay. <laughs> um, with no agreement. There was nothing written on paper. He just sent me the deposit. 
Um, then he completed due diligence in 48 hours and um, we closed on August 31st. <laughs> wow. Uh, September 30th, I mean. Because it was August 31st, you were trying to get the, the, the deadline had passed, I think. So it must have been no, September 30th. It was August 31st. Oh, okay. August August 1st is when I set the deadline. August, and okay. we, we literally closed August 31st. So that was about a month ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so what did he buy the business for? So it was a six-figure deal, um, part cash, part uh, earnout. Got it. So what proportion was cash versus earnout? Um, It was about... I want to say 30% cash. Okay. And, and then the rest earn out. And what's the earn out contingent on? Like, do, what, do you have to work in the company or is it no, based on so sales? No. So all or? I have to do is I have, I have to do four calls. Because um, again, I was already not in the business. So right. like it would have made no sense for me to have to go in the business. Um, my operations manager did have a transition period, um, you know, helping him set things up. Um, and yeah, no, it was not contingent on on kind of hitting any benchmarks or anything like that. It was just a percentage of revenue until the earnout was completed. You lost me there. So so the earnout was um, not contingent on using certain goals in no. the future. It was simply a time just, timing of yeah. Got it, it was just a, per, a percentage of revenue until we hit the earnout amount. A percentage of revenue so you were to you were going to earn basically a percentage of revenue, almost like a licensing agreement, until you reach that that the, the amount that you agreed to. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Great. And how's that going for you? It's it sounds like you, it's in early days. Yeah. So I mean, the cool thing about this transaction, like there was already a friendship and a relationship with the buyer, um, but I would say that I like him even more on the other side than I did, you know, before. Because you get you get to know someone really, really well when you're going through due diligence with them. Um, and yeah, he was like so high integrity, you know, so professional, um, was just very, very easy to work with. Um, and he was really, really great at like really listening to where I was at um, and going like, okay, I get it. Like the thing that you're not firm about is, or sorry, the thing that you're firm about is the timeline. So he was really smart at going like, you're firm on the timeline. Um, you know, the deal is the deal, but like maybe we can work out some some stuff on the finance side. He was just really smart with identifying what was movable and what was not movable. Got it. Got um, it. and was very fair about due diligence and you know not requesting things that didn't make sense. He, he made it really easy for me um, to get him what he needed. Wow, what a story! What a story! <laughs> you have now officially the longest, uh, most circuitous route to a sale and built to sell radio history. Yes, I can't believe I so. all of the ups and downs and curves along the way. It was horrible. I'm not going to lie. Is there, I mean, what's the big lesson? What's the big takeaway for you? As, as you tell the story again, I mean, if you had an entrepreneur saying, hey, Diane, I'm thinking of maybe selling, what's the big, big takeaway for you? What advice would you give them? Yeah. So, I mean, one, if you can definitely get a non-refundable deposit mm -hmm. <laughs> up front, if you can, just to have like skin in the game. And then, you know, two, and I've said it before, but I'll say it again, but like, really consider selling earlier um, because had I sold this, had I started the sale process, you know, six to 12 months earlier, um, I feel like it would have been, you know, a much different story. And I guess, you know, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think, yeah. The third thing is just, you know, get really real with yourself about 
what is standing in the way of you making the best business decision. So for me, like it was really clear that, you know, ego was driving this obsession to get to the finish line. And there was a point that we crossed where based on my personal, you know, circumstances and other businesses and finances, there got to a point where really it it was more of an ego decision to get to the finish line. And it wasn't the decision that made the most potentially financial sense had it kept continuing on. Um, so I think just being really real with yourself about like, what's, what's really the best decision for me based on my circumstances and uh, just identifying if you have like an unhealthy relationship with the business and with the business transaction. And if so, you know, potentially seeing if there's a different way to proceed. You know, the other thing that I would add in in hearing it is just sort of a personal observation is the power of forcing a deadline. Yes. I know, you know, I know a lot of M&A professionals, the good ones out there will run a, a process and and the timing of it and forcing people into a into a timing is a is a real art and science, but it it does drive it, it it it's they call it running a process, but it's the idea of of forcing that the the market to come together around a date and and not letting people sort of dictate their terms. This what it's it's for how your first deal fell apart, and it's certainly how your yeah. your ultimate deal came together. Is is you staying firm on no, it's got to be August thirty first. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, like, you have to be in a place of power right. to do that or, yeah. or a place of being empowered. And to be honest, a lot of people did not believe me. Yeah. Like they did not believe that I was at the place that I would rather shut down the business than it go later than that. And that's why, like, so many of those, like, final people could not come to an agreement because they just could not comprehend that I was in that place. Yeah. Whereas my buyer ultimately, you know, understood, I guess the other crazy thing, I mean, this is very much tied to my faith. Um, so, you know, may only relate to some of your, you know, listeners who, who are, have that kind of faith, but the whole time I was very set on my buyer being a Christian from California. I just always had this gut sense that this company should be based in California. And I wanted someone to be a Christian, um, just because of some personal things that I had kind of learned through the journey. And my buyer was a Christian from California. Oh, so that was just a like really cool thing. And I mean, for me, there was a lot of prayer that happened throughout this process. Um, so that was all God. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. Some divine intervention, as it were. A hundred percent. There you go. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, listen, this has been a great uh, conversation. Where can people reach out to you, Diana, if they want to say, um, kind of connect with you and say hi on social media? Is there a best spot to do that? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I think I was telling you earlier, I just got on Instagram. So it's, at Diana Powerhouse. My last name is House, and that was not available. So um, at Diana Powerhouse. Love it. At Diana Powerhouse on Instagram. Diana, thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell, or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-
I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.